Thank you, Ken. I did just want to mention, I spent some of my time during the shutdown with all the COVID craziness. By the way, we're being told now in the event of nuclear war, uh, if you go to a bomb shelter, try to wear a mask and keep six feet apart. <laughs> and you laugh as if that's a joke, but that is actually the instructions. That's how insane we've become. But I used a lot of the time during the shutdown to work on the notes on the New Testament. Uh, part one is Matthew through the book of Acts. This particular volume I'm holding is part two, which is Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And there may not be enough copies out there for everyone to get one. You can access it online. It's in digital form on our website. Uh, or you could order it from the office there in Arkansas. I no sooner got these finished than I was looking at them, and I started coming up with all the things that I should have put in that I didn't put in, and uh, I guess it's the part of the obsessive-compulsive nature of a pastor-teacher that uh, you no sooner get something finished than you wish you had done a better job. But at any rate, I hope it will be a blessing to uh, many people and uh, whether I'll ever get around to the third volume, which would be First and Second Corinthians and then the rest of the New Testament, I don't know because life seems to keep me pretty busy and we're on the move a lot. But at least we got what we were able to get and hopefully it'll be useful. I mentioned yesterday the book by Gregory Kukul called Reality. Again, I highly recommend this. Uh, it says how the world began, how it ends, and everything important that happens in between. Uh, this guy is a brilliant man. He writes in a very simple, clear, easy-to-understand way. Um, but he has a lot of really good information in here that would help you uh, in expressing your faith to other people, defending your faith. And uh, so I highly recommend it. He's got another volume called Tactics that goes into a lot more detail uh, where he shows you how to witness to people in a very relaxed and a very comfortable way. I know a lot of us are not naturally outgoing, gregarious type people, and we find it a little bit difficult to sometimes present the gospel to friends and family and relatives. Uh, but if you, if you get his book, Tactics, you'll find that he can give you, really in the first two or three chapters, you pretty much have a handle uh, on the method he recommends, which is puts all the burden on the people you're talking to and no real burden on you because all you're doing is asking questions. And you just uh, allow them to express what they think or the views that they hold until they run out of gas and can no longer defend their position. It's very interesting. I'm just going to read a text here from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 before I pray, and if you'll be opening your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. Solomon says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for the, they do not know that they are doing evil. Sometimes we are too eager to talk 
We're too eager to question, and we're going to read in the text of Habakkuk today, let all the earth be silent before the Lord. Sometimes we need to just quiet down and be, be silent and listen. So we're going to uh, pick up where we left off in Habakkuk, and you know, there's no way that I can really do justice to some of the texts that we're looking at. Uh, this is such a rich little book, and there's so much in it that uh, we could spend really months studying the book, and some sections we're going to slow down on. We'll, we'll take a little bit of time in these first couple of sections or sessions that we have to slow down. Some we're going to have to run over, so I hope that you'll be uh, patient and understanding that there's just too much here. So let's go before the throne of grace and ask God's blessing on our time together. And uh, I would like to just express my appreciation for the fact that you come out year after year. You're real gluttons for punishment. And I appreciate the fact that you're willing to uh, put up with uh, all of us coming in and taking advantage of your marvelous hospitality. So let's pray together. Father, as we come together this morning, how thankful we are for the gift of life. As bad as things are in the world, we're surrounded constantly with beauty. When we look on the precious faith face of a little child, we look at the turning of the leaves as the fall season comes upon us. We see a deer in the woods or crossing a field, the birds of the air, we're surrounded by just incredible beauty that's a part of your creation. And Father, when we meet old friends and even young friends, when we get together after long periods of time apart, we realize how precious human relationships are. We're so thankful, Father, that you have placed us in this world. And we're thankful that you find a part for each of us to play. We pray that our time together in the study of your word is going to equip us to better fulfill that part that you have for us to play. So give us that attitude that Solomon mentioned of coming into your presence, quieting our souls, silencing our outburst sometimes within our own mind of questions or contradictions or whatever there may be. Help us listen, help us learn, help us grow, that we may more fully reflect the glorious face of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. We thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. I always try to do this somewhere along the line during the conference, but I wonder if I could ask all of you who have served in our military to please stand. I know that it's kind of become a cliche, and I've heard some members of the military that uh, almost take it the wrong way when someone comes up and says, thank you for your service, but it is something that needs to be said over and over again. 
I don't need you to respond to this question, but how many of you would encourage a young man to go into the military today? I have a letter written by a former member of our military, and the title is, Why No One Wants to Join the Military. He says, grab a cup of coffee. I have something to say to you. He gives a list of reasons, and I'm not going to read the entire article, but I'm going to try to hit the high points. Number one, we no longer have faith in the administrative state. This is not hard to figure out. Most combat arms troops generally come from right-wing or conservative backgrounds, and you've been spending the last four to six years attacking us and calling us the enemy. You've weaponized the DOJ, the ATF, the FBI, the CIA, and God knows what else. They're being used to target conservatives. Do you really expect a rural conservative to join a combat arms uh, group when you're telling them that they're terrorists and extremists? Number two, a woke military. I can't believe this one even needs to be mentioned, but isn't it obvious? The military is now an environment of alphas who are being trained to kill human beings that are now having to go through a bunch of Marxist bullcrap. Don't even mention soldiers being kicked out because they refuse the vaccine. Get out of here with your cowardly BS. Number three, 20 years of lies will make you wise. Some of us have been there, bought the t-shirt and paid for it. Experience is the greatest teacher, so obviously why would a young person with a half a brain want to sign up for what's going on with our military-industrial complex? Point number four, people who are currently serving are being treated like second-rate citizens. Many of our veterans are now being told to get on food stamps while we give away billions and billions and billions of dollars to a country that is known to be the biggest money laundering center and the biggest child trafficking center in the entire world. Number five, you're no longer worth dying for. Society has spent the last four or six years telling us how bad America is, how bad military is, how bad law enforcement is, how unfair life is. We've been told our masculinity is toxic and that we are racist. We're no longer willing to die for you. Number six, they don't want to fight Americans. He says, yep, I said it. The writing is on the wall. America is already starting to peacefully balkanize. It's happening geographically. Look at the mass exodus from California. Depression in our youth is at an all-time high. They feel defeated and downtrodden like society doesn't support them. The God-honest truth is that Generation Z is more afraid of our own government than anyone else in the world. Why would they want to wear a military when they may be asked to fight their own people? Number seven, troops from the last 20 years of war are parents now. What do you think we're telling our kids? You're insane if you think we're recommending to our sons to sign up for your military. Number eight, we're tired of endless wars. I don't think Gen Z, Generation Z is comprised of cowards. I think they're smart enough to realize what they're signing up for. They would rather take their chances with thousands of great war on terror veterans in the streets of America if we're invaded.
He says invasion is the only way you're going to get a lot of them to be willing to take up arms, in which case, don't worry, they're going to have thousands of capable Great War on Terror vets to help them survive. Don't worry, we'll find the equipment. While you all are playing drag, we're going to defend the country. I thought that was an excellent article. Very sad, but unfortunately, very true. All right, we're going to uh, quickly, and I should have wrapped up just the last verses of chapter one. I'm going to read them. They're pretty much self-explanatory. I'm not going to do a lot of exposition on these verses. Uh, as we saw last evening in uh, the 12th verse, he comes to his first great insight, the first beam of light that shines through in his dark and dangerous time, and that is that God is everlasting, that he is my God. Habakkuk knows him personally, my holy one. He says, we shall not die. In other words, based on the essence of God, he knows that those who are believers, those who are members of the family of God, are going to be carried through this terrible time that's coming. He says, have you not appointed them for judgment? That is the Chaldeans. O rock, you have marked them for correction. And the point that he's making here, I believe, is that while God may judge the unsaved and the unjust, God doesn't judge his people. He disciplines his people. While judgment is falling on the wicked, God's hand of discipline and refining is purifying those who belong to him. Verse 13 says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no rule over them? They take up all of them with a hook. This is the idea of the Chaldeans coming in and the, the people of Judah are simply fish for them to catch. He says, you catch them, they catch them in their net. They gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous. In other words, here they are gathering up all these fish, which are actually people. They're enriching themselves. Uh, they are filling themselves with the wealth of the nation that they're going to take over. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? In other words, essentially what he's saying is, all right, you've told me the Chaldeans are coming. This is the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. And here we are like helpless fish that they're just going to drag into their net. They're going to gather all of us up together. Are you going to let this go on forever? Now, I have to tell you that when God doesn't answer us, it's because he wants us to trust him. Had God told Habakkuk what I'm going to tell you this morning, it would have been too good to be true. It may seem in the grimness of the sections that we're looking at that that couldn't possibly be right. If, as you and I sit here in this year of 2022, having the last couple of years behind us that I'm sure for many here was a great wake-up call, maybe you got red-pilled somewhere along the line, maybe you woke up to the fact that your country is not as great as you once thought, or that there is evil going on in this nation that is far more pervasive and far deeper than you ever imagined. 
And you look ahead and you see the storm clouds gathering and you wonder just how bad can it get. Well, I can tell you it'll be worse than you're imagining. But I'll also tell you this. If God could describe to each and every one of us what He is going to accomplish in the days ahead, it'd be too easy. Because we would realize, unfortunately, having full knowledge, there'd be no need for us to trust, would there? I'll explain a little more in detail as we go along. But having poured out his complaint to God, he now says in the first verse of chapter 2, and this will lead us to his second great insight, I will stand my watch, I will set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me. Uh, Habakkuk here is preparing himself for the divine answer because he says, I will see how I will answer when I'm corrected. In other words, I know I shouldn't be talking back to God. I know I shouldn't be complaining. I really need to be trusting Him. I know His character. I know His nature. I understand the essence of God, and therefore I should rest in reliance on Him. But I'm still complaining because I'm fearful, angry, rebellious, whatever. I want us to consider what he's doing here. Number one, he takes his stand. Sometimes we need to learn to just be still. Just take a stand and stand still. Secondly, he sets himself to hear. We need to be prepared to listen. And not only when the Word is being taught, but sometimes when we pour our hearts out in prayer, we need to just pause. We need to learn again the art of meditation. We had a conference last uh, spring in Arkansas, and I talked about the biblical art of meditation. I've been asked, by the way, to do it again. We'll be having a conference in Idaho uh, the, I think, 18th of November, 18th and 19th of November, 19th and 20th, one of those days. And because it was such a novel thing, and many people have never read a book on Christian meditation, have never heard a Bible class on Christian meditation, but I would suggest to you it is a lost art. We no longer know how to meditate. And a big part of meditation is to sit silently and listen for the still, small voice of God the Holy Spirit. So he is preparing himself. He is going to stand. He is going to set himself. He is going to watch. That means that he's going to be vigilant. He's going to be very, very attentive to that voice of the Holy Spirit. And he's prepared himself for Correction. You'll remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, when he told us that all Scripture is, what? Inspired. Literally, God-breathed. Theonoustos. It's the breath of God. When God created Adam, He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. When you and I respond to the gospel message, it's an inhale and an exhale of a newly created human spirit. We take in the gospel with a receptive heart, and it is... And then we exhale, and what do we exhale? We exhale an expression of faith to God. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. I now know that I am saved and I have security forever in the plan of God. 
Inhale, exhale. The Word of God, which is the breath of God, enters and creates that new human spirit. And then we begin spiritual breathing as we continue to grow. So all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. For what? Doctrine. That means teaching. Sound, systematic development of the Word of God. Why do we need the teaching? First thing, reproof. There's a reason that comes first. Because we all need to be corrected. For reproof, for correction, then we come to instruction in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete. The word literally means mature. Write this down in your notes if you've never thought about it. Faith is going somewhere. Faith never stands still. Faith is always moving toward a target. It's always moving toward a destination. We're following Habakkuk through a spiritual journey in his soul where he begins aghast at the things that he sees in his country and then God gives him a wider perspective as he looks at the nations and he realizes that God doesn't just have a view that relates to Israel alone, but that God's perspective is the whole world. And he's stunned. But as God leads him through it, he goes through all these stages where he gets reproof, he gets correction, he gets instruction in righteousness so that the man of God may be mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Get this in your mind. God had a job for Habakkuk that was critical in the time in which he lived. If God hadn't wanted him in the time in which he lived, he'd be living here today. God places each one of us in the time of history He wants us in. Some of us would like to have had an opportunity at another time, a couple hundred years ago maybe. You know, I'd love to have traveled with the mountain men or, you know, sailed the seas with some of the early explorers or whatever. That was not God's plan because I could not have accomplished what He wanted me to accomplish in that time. The time, the place, the duration of your life is all in the hand of God. And you are here for a vital purpose, and you may think that your life isn't all that important or that you don't have that much to do, but you must understand your life is critical because your life will make a difference that no one else's life could possibly accomplish. And so Habakkuk stands and waits, and it says in verse 2, Then the Lord answered me, and he said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. There are various uh, ideas about what this means, that the news is so fearful and compelling that when someone reads it, they're going to take off running. Or that the letters would be put on a great billboard on the side of the road so that even if a person's running, he can read it. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is this, every believer of Habakkuk's generation who saw the message that he was given was to become a courier carrying that message to their world. And that's why you're here. You're here to become a courier. You know, they have in the uh, Olympics, they have the pentathlon. And the pentathlon is made up of five different athletic events. 
They have to ride, they have to fence with a sword, they have to shoot, have to swim, they have to do all these things because the pentathlon was developed from the ancient people carrying messages, what we would call a courier. They even had them in World War I, if you remember the movie Gallipoli with uh, our old friend from Braveheart, Mel Gibson, how could I forget? And he was a courier. And he had to be able to run from point to point on the front lines with his message. Habakkuk is a spiritual courier. You and I are to become couriers. Once again, it's why we put on the full armor of God. We're not always fighting all together like we are here. This is a very rare opportunity for us to all come together. We're out there alone. And we're on the front lines of the battle. And we have to be armed and we have to be alert and we have to be vigilant because the enemy is going to do everything he can to disrupt us from carrying the message to those that need to hear. So they read it. They digest the message and then they run with the message. And he says, notice this in verse 3, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. Everything in God's plan happens at the right time. He's never too early. He's never too late. Many people are looking and expecting, and as the world is going crazy, when is the Lord going to return for the church? And I pray for it all the time. By the way, the New Testament ends with a prayer, does it not? How many times have you prayed that prayer? Even so, come Lord Jesus. You know what I believe? I don't believe He's going to come until the church as a whole is praying that prayer all the time. When the bride begins to cry out for Him to come, He will come. And it'll be at exactly the right appointed time. So He says it's going to happen at the appointed time. At the end, it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Don't be impatient. Why does God delay? The answer is very simple. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, God is not slack concerning His promises as some men consider slackness. He is patient to the world. He is patient to the mass of humanity. He is patient for every single soul. For what purpose? That people might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because He is not willing that any should perish. He tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that our prayer life should have a worldview. Pray for kings. Pray for leaders. Pray for all who are in authority. Why? Because this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I told you last night, God's plan always has a redemptive focus. And I'm going to show you what it did in the days of Habakkuk. And had God been able to say to Habakkuk, now this is what I'm going to do. You're not going to believe this, but this is what I'm going to work out. Habakkuk would have gone his way singing. But the wonderful thing is, through this journey that he takes through the book of these seven spiritual stages that I have in your brief little notes, and I gave you those because I wanted that to be... If you don't get anything else, I want you to get those seven stages. And then Habakkuk would be able to play the part that he had to play. And so God continues to him in saying in verse 4, and here's the key of the book. 
If I never get beyond this the rest of the day, I'm going to be happy if I can convey this. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Before I analyze this marvelous passage, I want to give you the seven blessings of the Bible. The seven blessings of the Bible. Very simple, just observations really. But wonderful blessings. Number one, it is a message directly from God to men and personally from God to you. When you read the Word of God, when you hear the Word of God, God is speaking to you. Whether we have ears to hear, whether we're receptive, that's another question. Number two, it is profitable. I just quoted you the passage. God's Word is given to us for our spiritual blessing and benefit. Number three, it establishes the body of truth which we believe. When the Bible talks about us living according to the faith, that little phrase, the faith, means the body of doctrine, the body of teaching that we believe. It establishes the body of truth or doctrine that we are to believe. Number four, it reproves us in regard to the sins and the errors of our lives. Something that's not very comfortable, but something that is critical. Number five, it provides a way for us to correct these evils in our life. Remember that I mentioned to you that the definition of evil, if we grasp it from an ancient mindset, is that it does damage, it does harm. When we are engaged in sinful activity, the ramifications or the ripples, if you will, of sinful activity going out always harms another soul. There is nothing as precious in the sight of God as the soul of every member of the human race. It was for those souls Christ was willing to step down into this world and go to the cross and bear the penalty of our sins. And you may have never thought about this, but when he hung on the cross and when he screamed out in anguish and agony, by the way, none of his physical sufferings caused him to cry out. What a man to go through the scourging that he went through, which was far more brutal than was ever allowed with any other prisoner. And the reason behind the fact that he was unable to even carry his own cross to Golgotha. And then as he stretched out his hands and his feet and willingly allowed them to drive those nine-inch square steel spikes. These were not little nails. These were not, you know, a little finishing nail. These were big hammered out steel spikes. And then raised on the cross where his joints began to dislocate and his lungs began to be constricted to the point where he could not breathe and it was such an exquisite form of torture that they would hang as long as they could on their arms until they were no longer able to draw breath and then push up on that spike between driven through their feet so that they could get a gasp of air 
He never cried out. But when our sins touched him, he screamed. And I want you to understand, it wasn't just the evil of our sins that caused him to scream. He not only felt the penalty from God for every sin ever committed, but along with it, he felt the shame of all the harm and the damage that it had done to the souls of other people. Did you ever think about that in relation to the crucifixion? When it says that he went to the cross despising the shame, that's what it has in mind. What a shame that we do damage to the hearts and the souls of other people. And we're all guilty. So it provides a way of correcting these evils. Number six, it gives us instruction in righteousness. Righteousness here simply means the way to be right with God. How you and I can come into a right relationship with God any given day, at any moment, simply by being honest and open before Him, confessing our sins, receiving His cleansing and correction and restoration to fellowship. And then finally... It strengthens and equips us for service. Those are the seven things we find there in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. The seven blessings of the Word of God. Now, when God speaks here to Habakkuk in verse 4 and says, as far as the proud, the word proud, by the way, is the Hebrew word afal. A-P-H-A-L is the way that we would transliterate it. It's a pu'al stem. There are seven stems in the Hebrew language. Each of them has a different reflection on how the verb or the action is being carried out. And the pu'al is intensive passive. You have a normal passive and then you have an intensive passive and the intensive passive is here and it's talking about him being inflated or blown up like a balloon. But it's passive because it's what he's receiving. You know, when people get in positions of power, as a result of that power, and we've used the phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've heard that before, I'm sure. And why is that? Because our natural state of human arrogance begins to suck in the praise, the recognition, the honor, the respect, maybe even from people that don't want to give it to us, but they do because of that position. It's one of the reasons why the most dangerous thing that anyone can engage in in the Christian church is being a teacher of God's Word. It's dangerous. And it's dangerous because people will tell you it was wonderful, and I know you mean it, and I know it's wonderful, but I have to tell you I tremble when I hear it. Oh, that was such a wonderful class. Well, give your praise to God. Somehow he got a message through this cluck that touched your soul. That's all it was. It's dangerous. Because as you have that praise, that recognition, that respect, whatever it may be, natural human arrogance begins to go and we get inflated. Now who is the proud that God is talking about? Stop and think about that for just a moment because if we don't reflect on these things, we're not really getting the message that he's giving to Habakkuk. 
Yeah, he is personifying the entire Babylonian Empire, but the Babylonian Empire is being run by someone. Who is the ruler of the Babylonian Empire? It's a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. As for the proud one, his soul is not upright. Why? Because he is inflated with his own importance. What God is going to do in this is just absolutely amazing. But the just, he says, shall live by his faith. There's more said in this verse than we could possibly get to if I spent the whole weekend on nothing but this verse. I want you to turn with me to see what God's going to do with the proud. And this is the part that he doesn't explain to Habakkuk, because if he did, it would ruin his opportunity to exercise faith. And God keeps secrets from us because there are things we don't need to know. And if we did know them, we wouldn't be living by faith. We'd be living by sight. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. You'll remember the story of how Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the palace roof, congratulating himself. Let's start in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Now this is the guy who's coming down to devastate the land of Judah. At the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And the king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power? And the honor of my majesty. Can you see him there going like a great big blowfish? What does God do with Nebuchadnezzar? Verse 31, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and they will drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they will make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times or seven seasons shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, verse 33 says, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from men and ate grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown out like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. What was the result of his arrogance? Verse 34, at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Quite a transformation, isn't it? And if you'll just turn back to the beginning of the chapter, you'll find out that this is a part of a tract that went out to the whole world. 
Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all people, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. The whole civilized world was under the hand of this man. Peace be multiplied to you. Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, Grace and peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonder of His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. Do you think if God had said here in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, Habakkuk, I know that Nebuchadnezzar is filled with his own pride and his own arrogance, but don't worry because by the end, he not only is going to become a believer, he is going to send a tract out throughout the entire civilized world. At that time, he ruled from India to Ethiopia. And messengers would be carrying this from one end of his kingdom to the next. What was it God said to Habakkuk? Don't worry, those who read it are going to run. The couriers will take the message, but you don't need to know the message. You don't need to understand everything that I'm going to do. Either you trust me or you don't. Habakkuk would have sat back stunned. No difficulty, no hardship, no disappointment would have been too much for him to have seen this happen. But that wouldn't have taken any faith, would it? You and I have no idea what God is doing in the world today. And you have no idea the people He's going to reach, possibly some of them that we look at as so evil, they're beyond the point of recovery. And He's going to recover them. And He's going to win them. And you and I have a part to play. And we need to play that part with the trust and the confidence of having He didn't have this to look back on like you and I do. So we have an advantage even over Him. You'll remember at the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And by the way, it's an important thing. Every time He called His disciples, He gave them the same command, follow me. Well, Lord, where are you going? None of your business. Follow me. Where? You don't have to know where. And so as he reconfirmed and, and reestablished Peter as the leader of the disciple band, he says to him, follow me, the same command he gave him at the beginning. And what does Peter do? Typical Peter style. Well, Lord, what about this guy? He sees John standing over there at a distance. What about him? What's your plan for him? I want to know what he's going to be doing. You remember what Jesus said? If I want him to last until I return, what's that to you? That has nothing to do with my plan for you. You and I are not here to evaluate the work of someone else. We are not judges and we're not fruit inspectors. Someone says, well, I don't see the fruit in your life. That's because you're not supposed to. Say, well, how can you say that? Didn't Jesus make it very clear? When you pray, go in your closet. Shut your mouth when you're out on the street. Don't blast your praises and prayers to the heavens. Go pray in private. Then I know it's between you and me and not you and everybody that gets to listen to you. When you give, give in such a way that even your right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. Keep it private. Keep it personal. 
I taught just last Wednesday night in our little church in Prescott, and uh, I made the point, and I think it's a very important point. Too often we do what we do for God, but we want to make sure everybody else knows it. And sometimes when we give our testimony, we're talking about things that God has done for us, and you know there are things that God has done in my life that I tell no one. You know why? They're personal. When I went to Bible college, they used to have a thing where the new students had come in and they'd give them an opportunity in the uh, chapel service to stand up and give their testimony. Most of them were bragamonies. Yeah, I, was in a, I remember one guy, wimpiest guy that I've ever seen, he said, yeah, I used to be a member of a motorcycle gang, and I'm going, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah, I was into drugs and sex, and we ran wild, rampaged all over the country, and then I came to Christ, and of course everybody claps. And there was one guy that came to that school that had the backbone and the courage when they asked him to give his personal testimony, he said, no. And they said, why not? He said, it's personal. It's personal. It's something intimate between me and my Savior, and it is not to be shared and doled out like so much garbage. God says to Habakkuk, I know the soul of Nebuchadnezzar. And he is inflated, and I have a plan for him, but my plan for him is not your business. Your business is my plan for you. And what was his plan for Habakkuk? The just shall live by faith. And the emphasis here on the word to live... It comes from the word amuna, which better would be translated faithfulness. It comes from the root amen, one of the five Hebrew words for faith. But it refers to steadfastness or faithfulness. And in the context, Habakkuk has the idea of living being spiritual effectiveness in the plan of God. The just shall live. Yes, it is eternal life. Yes, it includes abundant life. But what God is reminding Habakkuk is that he has a job to do. He wants Habakkuk focused like a razor on his plan for Habakkuk. And each and every one of us need to come to that point. My time is up. As I said, I may end up the whole day in Habakkuk 2.4. Who knows? Uh, I hope you'll not uh, grow weary of some of the good things that are in this. We'll pick it up here next time. Let's pray and take a little bit of a break. Father, I thank you for each and every soul that's here, and I want to pray especially for those that are burdened, for those that are hurting, uh, for those who carry wounds recent or old, and Father, in particular, for those who feel insignificant, if I could convey one message and get one thing across to this group, this audience, and anyone who may hear later as this goes out on the website, it is how significant they are in the plan of God. How important. Not that any of us should ever get puffed up. Not that any of us should ever carry this too far. 
But Father, the importance, the significance of our lives when we align ourselves with Your plan and Your purpose and we become a vessel of the Word of God and we become a servant of God the Holy Spirit, our life takes on eternal significance and glory. So Father, drive these truths deep into our souls in order that we might, like Habakkuk, come to the point of having a razor-like focus in these dark and perilous days on the fact that you have a marvelous plan for which we will be singing and rejoicing and celebrating throughout all eternity the grace that you have given to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.